Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This soundtrack show episode is dedicated to the memory of my mother, Mary. Mom, I'll miss you every day. This show is for you. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. In 1982, a perfect storm of talent and cultural timing gave us one of the greatest film scores of all time. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is all about the score to E.T. the Extraterrestrial, a film from 1982 with a story by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Matheson, produced by Kathleen Kennedy, directed by Spielberg, with an Academy Award-winning film score by John Williams. Much has already been said about this score, considered one of the greatest of all time perfect, operatic film music that accompanies a story about a lost alien, a suffering boy, and how they found and healed each other. For many years, I wondered about the universal appeal of this movie. And one day it hit me, there are no two humans on Earth that are farther apart than those humans and that alien creature. And if Elliot and the mother and the little girl and the scientist could all love and empathize and make a rapprochement and a rapport with this creature. So too can any two humans on Earth. And I think that was a subtext that bubbled up through the film and must have touched something because you don't get many films that are universally loved and appreciated 40 years later. And it spoke to something, some desire to be able to reach across boundaries and touch other people. I'll be right here. In their book, 100 Greatest Film Scores, authors Matt Lawson and Lawrence E. McDonald say of E.T.'s film score, quote, There are few film music programs at colleges or universities that do not reference the main theme from E.T. at some point in the syllabus. It truly exemplifies Williams' neoclassical or neoromantic style to such a degree of perfection 
that if film music were allowed one entry in a time capsule, this score would be one of the very top contenders." End quote. The American Film Institute listed as one of their 25 greatest film scores of all time, right up there with Williams scores for Jaws and Star Wars, and E.T. won John Williams his fourth Academy Award for Best Original Score. And the winner is John Williams for E.T. Thank you. I feel very lucky to have been asked by Steven Spielberg to compose a score for this very optimistic and loving and beautiful film. During our look and listen to E.T., we'll talk about E.T.'s multiple themes and their development, the emotions they evoke, the stories behind their creation, and why they work musically. We'll get into all of that. But before we do, I want to have a macro conversation about why. Why is the film score to E.T. such a masterpiece? What makes it one of the greatest? Doesn't John Williams always write great music? Spoiler, yes he does. What is it about E.T.'s score in particular that is so evocative of emotion, so transformative in terms of what it does to the movie, to us? To summarize, why is E.T. as a whole so, so great? I'd like to propose several reasons. The first is this. E.T. is very cinematic in its storytelling, meaning... It uses pure cinema in the silent film sense and cinematic techniques to get its ideas across. Long, wordless sections of the movie that only feature music and visuals, no dialogue, make up some of the most memorable parts of the film. In a sense, there are many parts of E.T. where the score is the movie. Reason number two. E.T. isn't a franchise. It isn't an adaptation. It's a bit of a sequel to Close Encounters, but more on that later. It's a wholly original story and screenplay by Spielberg and Melissa Matheson, and it is deeply, deeply personal. It's a story about a young boy trying to make sense of his own loneliness, his own emotions, as his parents are dealing with divorce. Because of this, the whole story is about strong emotions, about dealing with emotional and very literal abandonment, about healing through emotional intimacy about friendship, about love. I mean, strong emotions? This is where music lives! Reason number three. Even though movies are typically a film director's medium, this is something we've talked about a lot on this show, you know, opera and even musicals nowadays, the main driving creative force behind those is the composer or the songwriter. Film is a director's medium where the director controls everything and music is applied after the fact based on the director's recommendations, with, by the way, wildly varying degrees of care or involvement depending on the director or the movie, E.T. feels more like a traditional opera where the music seems to drive everything. And in one famous case, which we'll get to later, actually drove the timing and editing of a very famous climactic sequence. Reason number four. Everything that came before created a window of perfect timing for both the talent behind E.T. and the culture surrounding it. In the La La Land Records 35th anniversary album of E.T., author and producer Michael Mattesino says the following about the movie, quote, E.T. the film and E.T. the score benefit 
from the concept of intertextuality, which is the identification of how new works, like E.T., are affected by awareness on part of both the artist and spectator of what has come before. I'll say that again. Intertextuality is the identification of how new works like E.T. are affected by awareness on part of both artist and spectator of what has come before. Sometimes intertextuality is instinctive, sometimes subconscious, sometimes intended, end quote. This last reason about intertextuality, about everything that had us arrive at the making and release of E.T., is where I would like to begin our discussion. I want to approach this score in the context of larger cultural, musical, and artistic conversations that have taken place in our Western culture. Because the more I read about E.T., the more I listen to it, the more I watch it, the more I realize that it is a perfect storm of multiple elements coming together to create lightning in a bottle. Flashes of genius just exploding out onto the screen at an incredible speed. Because the creators and the audience were ready. In 1975, he directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T. the Extraterrestrial. The connection has been made. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. So let's start with some context about the music, and we've talked about this as well before. E.T. is a perfect example of a neoclassical or neo-romantic score, meaning that it is deeply rooted in the Western European orchestral tradition of the 18th and 19th centuries. I'm talking about the music of Brahms, of Wagner, of Beethoven, or Mahler, or Richard Strauss. And while all of those names and that style of music is centuries old in some cases, movies, in their first half century or so of existence, heavily utilized this style, particularly in the 1930s and 40s out of Hollywood. So, that effect made it become part of the world's cinematic language, using music to conjure emotion, to move the plot along. It's right up there with how films are edited and shot. We accept this music, this style of music, as a part of our understanding of the medium of moving pictures from the beginning. It is a fit that is practically as old as movies themselves. And while this style eventually fell out of favor in the 1950s and 60s, it came roaring back with John Williams in the mid to late 1970s, first with Jaws, and most importantly, Star Wars. So, E.T.'s music is steeped in hundreds of years of orchestral tradition. nearly 100 years of film music utilizing these styles. What's so striking about this fact, then, is that it should occur to us that the motion picture, or movie, is really a direct descendant of opera, of operetta, of musical theater, dramatic stories set almost entirely to music. 
And while I won't get into it too much here, you can learn more about opera in my episode titled Wagner, the First Lord of the Ring, it's important for our discussion about E.T. because of its operatic nature. We have at the helm of this picture arguably the most popular, most successful, music-forward director to have made movies in the last half-century, Steven Spielberg, who is one of film music's most important champions, something that I spoke about in our Goonies episode. And you have his ever-so-important collaboration with composer John Williams. E.T. marked their sixth collaboration together. Here is a Spielberg quote from the original album liner notes from the E.T. soundtrack. Quote, in our 10-year and six-picture association, John Williams has been an immeasurable creative force in all of my movies. This should be obvious to anyone who realized that John was the voice of Jaws, the soul of the mothership from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and the furious heartbeat from which Raiders of the Lost Ark flowed. John's score to the movie E.T. is unlike any of his others. It is soothing and benign. It is scary and suspenseful and, toward the climax, downright operatic. For me, this is John Williams' best work for the movies. John Williams is E.T. End quote. So here we have a creative discussion years in the making with its strength brought to bear on this emotional operatic movie. Well, let's talk about the actual movie that they set about scoring and a little about the history of movies themselves particularly in the area of popular entertainment. This is where our cultural conversation becomes more immediate leading up to E.T., as we follow a thread from the decline of the Western genre, arguably the most popular movie genre of the 20th century, into an age of fantasy and science fiction movies taking over pop culture. Star Wars, Superman, Raiders, Dragon Slayer, etc. It's interesting to note that before Star Wars, Science fiction was a relatively smaller genre. It certainly didn't equate to the huge box office success that happened with Star Wars and afterwards. Special effects before Star Wars had a couple of big breakthroughs, most notably 1968's 2001, A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. But by 1982, that had all changed. Star Wars brought sci-fi fantasy to the very forefront of pop culture. It brought believable, credible images to the screen that captured our imaginations, all set to a score by Williams. Well, there's another movie that also did this in the late 70s. Another movie that brought us a credible, beautifully done story about aliens set to a Williams score. I'm talking about Spielberg's film Close Encounters of the Third Kind from Columbia Pictures. It's a movie that features terrifying sequences of alien encounters at first. But delivers a very believable experience that is awe-inspiring and filled with wonder by the end of the movie. As humans make musical contact, more about that in a bit, and as we see the mothership and the aliens themselves, we leave the film feeling uplifted. And, back in 1977, feeling that we can now comfortably see aliens on the silver screen. 
It's a whole separate story that has been pretty well documented, but it's worth mentioning that E.T. in many ways is a sequel to Close Encounters, and we'll make those comparisons as we go along. E.T. sort of came about in stages for me. Close Encounters, which I made in the mid-70s, was a movie, really, it was, it was really the original movie, and, and E.T. therefore is the sequel. One of the things that really, really inspired me to want to work with Stephen was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This all leads us to the story of E.T. While Spielberg had been considering making another movie about aliens like Close Encounters, or perhaps a sequel, he was also considering making a different movie that took place in the suburbs. One thought that continually stayed with him was a story about children and the trauma that they go through when their parents get divorced. Originally, my idea for E.T. didn't include an extraterrestrial. It was going to be about how a divorce affects childhood and how it really kind of traumatizes children. So the overriding theme was going to be about how do you fill the heart of a lonely child? Me, human. Boy. Elliot. And what extraordinary event would it take to fill Elliot's heart after losing his dad? It would take something as extraordinary as an extraterrestrial coming into his life. These things started to gel together over conversations with Melissa Matheson and the screenplay for E.T. emerged, and Spielberg was rushing it over to Kathleen Kennedy to begin production. It took eight weeks for us to get the first draft, which was quite fast, I think. And she delivered this 107-page first draft to me. I was just knocked out. I, I, it, was, it was a script that I was willing to shoot tomorrow. I, I didn't really want to do a lot with it. It was, it was, it was honest. And it was right from both of our hearts, but Melissa's voice made a direct connection with my heart. And Stephen came running into the commissary with the screenplay, and he said, I've just read Melissa's first draft, and we could shoot this tomorrow. It's the best first draft I've ever read. And I think in many respects, Stephen would say that that's true even today. And what a beautiful script it was. One that we were ready for. A story about how fantasy and science fiction was squarely in the minds of children? Check. A story about resilience amidst family crisis, even though we secretly long for emotional connection? Check. And a story about an alien coming to Earth that we would immediately believe and even empathize with? No sweat. Check. We were ready for this story. The movie's about a children's world through their eyes and about things that happen to them in contemporary, you know, suburban li living. Science fiction characters were already rocking the suburbs. We were already playing with our Star Wars toys, already dreaming about aliens and other planets and befriending lovable fantasy characters. So it wasn't much of a stretch to see this very phenomenon play out in front of us in a movie with the same musical style and the same composer that had us fall in love with it all in the first place. And now for a brief intermission. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We return now to the soundtrack show. I really think E.T. may be his best score. And that's, that's, that's hard to beat. I mean, 
The guy has written so many iconic themes, but I think E.T. it may be his most emotional score because of the theme. The one brilliance of John Williams is he writes themes that when you leave the theater, after hearing, hearing it a couple of times in the film, you walk out singing it, humming it. That's the brilliance of John Williams, is that he can connect with an audience so intensely. If it would be convenient to go into the call. I like that. It, it, it seems like a very natural transition yeah. into the loneliness and out of the, uh, the tenderness. Yeah. If you're listening to this show, chances are you know the music to E.T. You know the main flying theme. And the likelihood that you know other themes in the film as well is pretty high. In this episode, we're going to talk mainly about two major themes in this movie. Their musical construction, how they're related to each other, and most importantly, how they're used and make us feel. The first theme that we'll talk about is referenced multiple times by Williams and Spielberg as The Call. It goes like this. This is the very first theme that we hear in E.T. It opens on a solo flute over a star field. And while it's somewhat mysterious, it also has a gentle, somewhat harmless quality to it. We hear this theme before we're introduced to a single character, human or otherwise. It sets the stage for the story that is about to unfold. Here's another quote from Mike Mattesino from the 35th anniversary La La Land release. And it wonderfully summarizes the opening moments of E.T., which features this theme, but also touches on the cinematic techniques of this movie as well as the intertextuality that creators and audience alike bring to it. Quote, E.T. begins with a motif Williams dubbed The Call, which plays over a star field we first think is outer space, but is revealed to be the night sky above a redwood forest. Performed by solo flute, with the first interval being up a perfect fifth, of course, The phrase evokes mythical stories of the Greek god Pan and, more obscurely, the Native American muse Cocopelli, who calls forth agricultural growth with his flute and whose image various tribes see on the full moon. While it's doubtful Williams consciously thought of these references, he has noted that the, and this is Matticino quoting Williams here, quote, the one thing every culture on earth shares even before language is music. There's a very basic, nonverbal aspect to our need to make music and use it as part of our human expression. It doesn't have to do with body movements. It doesn't have to do with articulation of a language, but with something spiritual. Mattesino goes on after quoting Williams. The spiritual is certainly suggested by the second shot of the film, an alien spacecraft resembling a Victorian Christmas tree ornament sitting among the evergreens. Then... Beginning with what amounts to a seven-minute shadow play. Oh, I absolutely love that. Beginning to what amounts to a seven-minute shadow play, we are introduced to the extraterrestrials. It's a cinematic first for a genre that usually begins with human characters. And yes, sidebar, I know that Star Wars starts out with two droids, but 3PO is far more human than what he's talking about here. 
But it works in E.T., Mattesino goes on, largely because of intertextual awareness of Close Encounters and five years of Star Wars dominating cinematic pop culture. Ah, there it is. He says, Amid the sounds of wind, crickets, frogs, and birds, the gnomish horticulturists seem at one with their surroundings, end quote. Oh, I just love Mattesino's writing. The call theme is heard quite a bit as a prelude to the main flying theme, which we'll get to in just a bit. For now, let's break down this theme. It opens with a classic interval, the perfect fifth. From there, it drops just a half step to here, before rocking back and forth on these two notes, and eventually settling a step above where it started. It started here. Then it repeats, only this time, offers a glimpse at change, or a glimmer of optimism, of hope or growth, like a bloom of possibility. By comparison, this theme develops into one of the most famous pieces of John Williams music of all time. This is commonly known as the flying theme. I'm just going to play the beginning of it so we can compare it to the call theme. It starts with that opening fifth again, before skipping down a joyous, simple major scale, and down to the fifth. Before we move on, it's worth talking about this opening interval, the fifth. This is an interval that we've spent a lot of time talking about on the soundtrack show. Episodes on Star Wars, of course, Superman, even Fellowship of the Ring when talking about the dwarves. And most importantly, we discussed it in terms of physics and as one of the foundations of all music in my episode titled, What is Music? No, seriously, what is it? Well, with regard to these two themes, the call, and the flying theme, we should talk again about context, or as Mattesino calls it, intertextuality. Here's another quote from Mike Mattesino who points out the musical connection from Close Encounters to E.T., and even talks about 2001, A Space Odyssey. Quote, The starting point for connecting the two scores is an obvious one. Close Encounters' famous five-note signal. Take the last two notes of that phrase, up a perfect fifth, as one of the scientists instructs in the film, and you have an interval on which every prominent musical theme in E.T. is based. The most familiar use of that interval, apart from the main theme of Star Wars, of course, might be the introduction to Richard Strauss's Also Sprock Zarathustra, famously used in Stanley Kubrick's science fiction masterpiece 2001, A Space Odyssey. This through line from 2001 to Close Encounters to E.T. itself is an expanded intertextual anchor that contributes to E.T.'s archetypal impact, accomplished through the music and one simple melodic interval. 
Wow. Familiar sounds. Context that we and the creators are bringing to the screen. But let's not stop there. Let's keep looking at these themes. I mentioned the opening of this theme. But let's keep going. It goes up a perfect fifth, makes its way down a major scale, and jumps down below its starting point to the fifth interval, an octave below its highest point. But wait, from there, it walks up a step and makes a huge leap up a whole octave. From here, we enter a series of skip downs and leaps, each arriving faster than the first. But now for a hint of danger. As the theme goes minor and stays there for not one phrase, but two, before leaping one last time then down a half step, ending the main theme on a major seventh. A soft position for our big cadence. Okay, several things to unpack here. The first should be obvious. The opening fifth represents the wonder of alien life visited upon us, coming to suburban America. The melody is E.T., as Spielberg mentions but it falls to earth. However, it tells the story of finding a way to push ever upward. And upward, in spite of danger. And ultimately succeeding with the help from a friend, a child named Elliot. Great melodies tell great stories. Also, we should talk about the harmony in the call. Two chords are spelled out that give us a sense of modulation, a sense of transformation. Of starting in one place, but being augmented into a whole other place. The power of Lydian is that it suggests, at least with this harmony, that we're changing keys. And what's interesting is that we never quite move wholly to the next key in the call. Instead, by keeping the original key in the bass, we're given what feels more like a polychord, meaning two chords, two friends, playing at the same time. Now, in the call theme, that phenomenon is barely hinted at with this Lydian line. And it also doesn't go very far. In fact, when we do get the other chord spelled out, that's all fine and good, but the theme sticks us right back on the one chord in the second phrase. In this way, it's a bit stuck and only hints at growth with the ascending melody at the end. This all works on our subconscious minds, creating a tension, a dramatic tension, a resolution that we're just not getting. Not until the arrival of the flying theme, that's when we finally get our release and a final cadence. And the flying theme expands and tells a deeper story of these two chords. Its harmonic rhythm, meaning how quickly it changes chords or harmony, is a bit slower at first. 
as it just stays on the first chord for the entire first phrase. But then, when it does give us the addition of the second chord, our characters go off flying almost immediately before we can even finish the second phrase. Then they fly further, looking down at the danger that they can overcome together. And then finally, how wonderful that a movie that takes place in the everyday suburbs contains such lift in its music, such ascension out of our normal lives. And we have to talk about that ending. My, oh my, that ending. You know, off the top of my head, I can't think of another theme this famous that ends like that on a major seventh. It doesn't, for example, do this. That feels way too overstated, too impersonal, in a way. No, I always get that confused. Sometimes. Sometimes. Does it ever go up once in the movie yet? yet? It hasn't gone up yet, has it? At the end, I'll save it for the last reel. (laughs) Up or down? Maybe, maybe once down, it could go down once and then go up. He's got so many options to, to end it. By not landing on this big one chord, we are given a melody that never rests on a final perfect interval. In music, what gives harmony its definition is not necessarily the perfect intervals like fifths and octaves. Rather, character comes from thirds and sevenths. There's an emotion to it. Dare I say, a vulnerability to it. It's a far more emotional choice, one that evokes more tears of emotion than a simple classic cadence to the one. Not that we don't eventually get the cadence to the one chord. We do. But John Williams and Steven Spielberg are sure to have us wait all the way until the movie's triumphant ending before they give us that release. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Is there a favorite score for Steven Spielberg that you've done? Probably E.T. Is there a reason why that one has a special place in your heart? I think structurally, what happened, the development of the musical structure with the story, I think would be, the, would be my answer to you. We remember the film when the bicycles take off, and yes. but prior to that, the bicycles, you will hear two or three notes of the theme, and that's all. And the next time, you may hear three or four notes, and it's beginning to form in your memory as we're going along with the thing. And as the bicycles take off, you hear all 12 of the notes, and the melody is realized and finished. What I often will try to do is write the end part of a film first. In the case of E.T., the structure of the whole film was aimed at that point. What's happening? We had several opportunities to play the theme before the bicycle liftoff, which prepares the audience. They've heard it now, and they're going to hear it again, maybe in a different key. And now they're going to hear it a third or fourth time, but with these modulatory preparations. So finally, when it does take off, you feel like you've finally gotten somewhere you needed to go. John Williams is a master at weaving his themes through a narrative. 
He understands, as the greatest composers do, that music is a series of tensions and releases. Tension. Release. Tension. Release. Great stories do this as well. Dramatized problems, situations, and the plot unfolds and complicates and finally finds conclusion. Because of this parallel between music and plot, Williams uses his themes carefully to let them unfold and release, just like a story. Take these two themes that we've studied in this episode. The call and the flying theme. One leads to the other. One is a dramatic maturation of the other, or inversely, one is a preparation for the other. So it's interesting then to study how and when these two pieces are used throughout the film. As I mentioned before, we first hear the call at the very beginning of the movie as we're introduced to our alien friends doing research in the woods. We hear it again after E.T. is left alone in the woods and is looking over the suburban landscape. After Elliot has an encounter late at night, and fails to find E.T. when he looked for him. We hear the call again, this time from Elliot's point of view, as he's doing the dishes in the kitchen and gazes upwards to the heavens. Grow up. Think how other people feel for a change. Later, after befriending E.T., Elliot shows him around the house and we hear a playful version of the call. The first intended introduction of the flying theme doesn't happen until nearly 40 minutes into the film, as E.T. tries to explain to the kids where he's from. Earth. It starts with the call, as they all look at a book of the solar system. But when E.T. uses his magical alien ability to levitate toys like planets in the room, we hear, gently, the flying theme. It's stated very softly. And a plot is set in motion to protect E.T. and help him phone home so that he may ultimately return. Having E.T. fly back through the solar system is foreshadowed as our character's ultimate goal just with thematic music alone. The call and the flying theme are gently stated in other parts of the movie. For example, as E.T. starts to assemble a device for contacting his people. Uncle Ralph, long distance from California. <laughs> 
But it all comes together on Halloween night as E.T. and Elliot escape on his bicycle into the woods and then go flying up into the night sky. This is the release that we've been waiting for. Leading up to this theme, we have this phrase in eighth notes that seems to feel very perilous. Somehow capturing the feeling of being a kid out at night who hasn't pedaled home on their bike before the streetlights had gone on. Something that was a rule in my house growing up. We'll be waiting for you, Elliot. Just come back for sure. <coughs> Trouble is brewing. Or is it? As they approach an impassable part of the forest, too bumpy. We'll have to walk from here. E.T. takes over and levitates the bike. When that happens, Williams releases a full orchestra on the flying theme here. And how glorious it is. The magic of this friendship that is now literally extraterrestrial is realized, but not without fear from Elliot. His heart pounding, Williams accompanies this with the theme's B section for the first time, and we hear a series of strong cadences. But they're a bit unusual, a flat six to a one major, chromatically descending to the fifth on top, stated strongly in the brass. It's as if the magic of the moment is so unexpected, so overpowering, as Elliot looks down at the forest below, we hear those perilous eighth notes again before he finally accepts the danger and embraces the magic. As he does, the theme comes soaring back at us with pure joy. Don't crash, please. <laughs> Though the two don't quite stick the landing as they come back down to terra firma. There are trials and tribulations throughout this journey that we'll touch upon in a later episode, but this flying sequence is revisited with the neighborhood kids in tow at the end of the film. As they help E.T. escape back into the woods to his ship, and this time, they nail the landing. What follows is the most touching scene I've ever watched in science fiction fantasy, as Elliot and his family say goodbye to E.T. When E.T. walks up the ramp to his ship, we get the flying theme again in anticipation of their departure. But before it cadences, we get one last reminder from Williams of how it all started. A lost alien and a hurt child, answering the call to adventure. Then, as the ship takes off, Williams gives us the flying theme effortlessly as it gracefully ascends. And right as it takes off, the final, 
promised release of tension. Incredible emotion is delivered in a fanfare of trumpets. Followed by a series of brass chords playing the call once again, as we see the faces of all who ultimately answered that call. It ends in a massive extended final one chord on the cadence, with the strings playing that one tone, the tonic, at the top. E.T. opens our hearts and renews our spirit through this adventure. The movie celebrates our love of fantasy, of genre, but more importantly, it celebrates love itself and the importance of friendship. On the next episode, we'll discuss even more of the amazing music of E.T. from the beginning. We'll hear how it plays with context around Star Wars and the 1980s and marvel at how this operatic film is so brilliantly constructed. Thank you. Thank you.